All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and get going. We'll try to finish on time. Um, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be here with you tonight. Uh, so we're, I think this is week four in our uh, study of Christian identity. So who am I? Who are we? Um, what does God have to say about us? And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, marriage and family. So Christian identity and marriage and family. And uh, before we get too far along, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. So join me in prayer. Uh, dear Father, thank you that you're good and you love us. Thank you for your patience and uh, kindness with us. Uh, thank you for upholding us with your righteous right hand. Thank you for speaking so that we might know you, uh, so that we might know ourselves, uh, so that we might uh, have a path uh, through the darkness. And uh, thank you that you've not left us alone. Uh, thank you for the time that we have together tonight to fellowship and to eat food and to make new friends and to connect with old friends uh, and to think about you and about who we are and who you say that we are. And uh, thank you for this time that we have set apart tonight. And as we look through your scriptures and um, think together, I pray that you'd be with us, that you lead us and that you'd guide us um, into greater clarity of thought uh, and obedience of heart and hands. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, we've been talking about identity. And uh, sad to say, I wasn't here the past two weeks. So hopefully, I've seen Scott's notes. So hopefully, I don't say much that you guys have already said because you talked about um, identity in male and female, our sexuality already. And we'll uh, cover some of that ground a little bit tonight. Uh, but before we get too far down the road in marriage and family, I want to sort of remind us of two sort of categorical things that I think are super important um, that Scott has mentioned, but it's worth revisiting. Uh, and the first is just this question of like, where where does identity come from, right? Um, how do we know? How do we answer that question of who am I? And uh, there's really sort of two broad categories of where you can get that answer. And uh, I'll say that on the one hand, we can't think of identity as a project, so something that I have to figure out and create on my own, it's sort of my responsibility to figure out who I am. Uh, so identity is a project, or identity is a gift. Uh, God says who I am, and I get to receive that gift. Okay, so it's a project on the one hand or a gift on the other. And underpinning those two things, I would say there's sort of two different philosophical approaches we could think about. Um, historically, which is uh, identity comes from reason or revelation, sort of a different way of saying that. Um, reason being, again, I figured out on my own, right? I think therefore I am. I'm sort of the center of the universe, my own universe at least. And uh, I have to start with things that I know are true and then sort of piece together, cobble together uh, what is my experience of life and, and who am I. So I think therefore I am, reason, uh, or revelation thus says the Lord, right? God says. And then it's my job to listen to what God says and sort of work that out in my life. Um, why is revelation better than reason? Why is that a better option for us? Existentially. Why is it better that I let God figure out who I am than me have to figure it out? Not our own creator. Well, we're not our own creator, so we're finite and limited, 
right? So there's things that we can't know. <clears throat> um, what's it like for me if I have to figure out who I am? Very unsettling. It's unsettling. I think there's a confidence in knowing, okay, you are who God says you are. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like it's actually not just unsettling, but like terrifying <laughs> if I have to figure everything out about who I am and what the world is like. Um, one of the things Scott said to me in a conversation a while back is um, that really stuck with me is that the the weight of human identity is is far too heavy for any one of us to bear, right? For us to have to figure that out, and I think we see this a lot uh, in, in our the younger generation of kids who have sort of grown up in a world where they've been told there's endless options and you get to figure it out. You do you, right? So even before COVID hit and all the reasons that we've all had to be anxious for the past two years. Um, mental health issues and anxiety amongst young people has just skyrocketed. Um, and if you know, if the world's, if it's, if it's all an option to me, man, um, I mean, I get a little anxious when I go to a restaurant and there's like too many good things to choose from, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if everything's an option, in, including like my my gender, uh, even my, man, I can't remember. There was this really. Um, new and interesting thing I read about the other day where it's not just like your, your gender is sort of up for grabs, but like, um, oh, I wish I could remember what it was called. But people like that are not even identifying as human anymore. And so I can, there's some other species or creature or something. I mean, it's ridiculous, but, um, but it's real. Okay. Um, so we have revelation. God speaks, thus says the Lord. All right. And that's very comforting because he is our creator. Right? He's the all-powerful, all-knowing uh, one who spoke us into existence, and he knows. Right, So we have the real privilege and benefit of, of listening to him and then working that out. Um, so that's the first thing I just want to remind us of. Second thing um, that Scott talked about in the first week is this idea of correspondence. Right, So human identity uh, involves conforming our sense of self to God's sense of ourselves. Okay. Um, so that my sense of self is in God's image. Who I am is someone who uniquely corresponds to God. So God spoke us into existence. He created us in his image and his likeness. Jesus is the image of God. We're created in his image. So there's this correspondence in humanity. There's things about us um, that are analogous to things about God. Okay. Um, So you guys remember some of those things um, that you guys talked about maybe in the first or second week, some of the ways that we correspond to God. Does not answer that. Was it the person who identified as like a British Columbian wolf? Is that the thing? I didn't read about that, but that's the same. It's the same thing. Okay. Yeah, that's very specific. It was you. It was Dave. Is that what you're laughing about? But it's that. Yeah. Um, creative was one of the things we said. So we're creative, right? Uh, so God creates, uh, and then we create with the stuff that God creates, right? Um, what else? That's good. We enter into covenant relationships. Okay, so we're relational. That's a big one. We'll talk about that um, a good bit more tonight. Uh, we're relational, right? Because God Himself. Uh, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit is a perfect relationship, right? 
um, a relationship of giving and serving in mutual love. Um, so correspondence, okay? Those are two things. Both of those will come up um, more as we talk tonight. Uh, so as we jump into the sort of main topic at hand, marriage and family, um, let's just start by asking, as we look at the world around us, the culture that we live in, particularly Western culture, uh, what are some of the trends that we see in marriage and family? What are some things that are happening in marriage and family? What are people saying about marriage and family? What are they doing in marriage and family? What's the cultural status? It's being canceled. It's being canceled. Okay. What do you mean by that? Unpack that. What's that? Partnerships. Partnerships. So folks are, you know, cohabitating. They're committing to each other on some minimal level, but not uh, a covenant, lifelong commitment. Yeah. It's just like really self-serving. If it's not making you happy, if it's not honoring who you are, no worries. Get on out. Done with it. Done with it. Yeah. And then parenting, people don't parent anymore. It's like, oh, I'm sorry you don't feel that way. I mean, just like options on options on options. When I was yeah. teaching eighth grade, there's a new psychological disorder called oppositional defiance disorder. You have to give kids choices because you can't tell them what to do. Okay. Um, yeah, two super important things you said there um, is so we don't parent anymore, and we'll come back to that again too. Um, and that again gets to this sort of uh, identities my own project kind of thing. It, it's not for me to tell them who they are, right? And uh, marriage exists, like so many other things, basically for my own benefit and pleasure, however I define that. And once it ceases to fill that role, done with it. It doesn't matter that we've made a, some kind of legally binding commitment, promises to one another in front of witnesses, like, done. Which is understandable, because, I mean, in a world that doesn't know Christ, marriage makes no sense. I mean, I, I look at 29 years of sheer bliss. Um, no, if I look at 29 years, and if, if we hadn't been bound together by Christ, he left you a long time. <laughs> Decades. You know, I mean, there, so I'm, I'm being blunt. Yeah. It's completely understandable yeah. that, you know, that marriage is being kind of like, as I said earlier, canceled by the world. It's just doesn't make sense to people who don't know Christ. Yeah. I mean, your commitment is ultimately not to that person, to the institution, the commitment to the God who made you and made it. It's to your own personal happiness, however you define that. Absolutely. So you're done. Um, you guys probably all saw this in the news recently. It sort of made headlines even in my world. I don't pay too much attention to this stuff. Um, but Adele just got divorced, right? And it was kind of a big deal. And when they asked her about it, one of the reasons she gave um, was that she wanted her son uh, to see her happy. And so for whatever reason, her marriage relationship was not making her happy, and she didn't want to do that to her kid. So the best option was to get out of there, right? That's real weird. Like, her and the guy are still, like, she was like, we still love each other. We still spend time together. He lives across the street. They, like, co-parent. They're like, but... No marriage because it doesn't make us happy. Um, it's sad. So marriage is optional. It's disposable. Um, it fits our purposes, whatever those may be. 
Um, and so there's this, this, I'll give you a title for some of what's going on here. It's called Expressive Individualism. All right, so here's a quote. Uh, expressive Individualism, each person holds a unique core of feelings that should be allowed to unfold or be expressed without external limitation in order that an authentic and self-fulfilling individual is realized. Um, so the only thing that's real is sort of what I feel and what, ma what makes me happy, okay? Uh, and you have to affirm my feelings, by the way, or otherwise you're a threat to me and canceled, right? Um, so this is what I call the Imago Dei versus the Imago Me. It's me, right? It's what I want and you're a threat to me if you don't affirm uh, everything about me. Uh, and so this sort of ideology is, is undergirding um, the lack of... Um, you know, respect for the institution of marriage. Uh, it's, you know, as, as sort of Christians have traditionally understood it, uh, it's what underpins um, the Obergefell decision a number of years ago. Uh, because if marriage is just about two people being happy, then, it, you know, any two people can enter into that if that's all it is, right? Um, and so as we think about marriage, um, I think one of the questions we really need to ask, and we'll look at the scriptures um, to get our answers from this, is like, what, what is marriage for? And that'll help us to understand what it is a little better. And I think when we ask the question, what is it for? Okay. So the worldly answer, again, is basically it's for making me happy. It's for self-actualization, self-realization. And the moment it ceases to do that, um, I've got to get out of jail free card because the cultural trends Right? And nobody will think less or worse of me. Um, but God actually says marriage is for something much more and much deeper and much more significant uh, than your personal happiness. Uh, ultimately, it's, it's for God's glory and for God's mission and for our good. Okay, um, So um, we'll look at a couple passages here. We're going to start off with uh, Ephesians chapter 5, if you guys have a Bible with you. And uh, we'll return to this idea of correspondence for a moment. Uh, Ephesians 5, of course, is sort of this great uh, marriage text. Uh, and it says this. I'll read a few verses. It says, wives, super popular verses, I know, but um, it gets to someplace important. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, and he's quoting from um, the Old Testament here, a man shall leave from Genesis uh, 1 and 2, which we'll turn to in a minute. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Um, so as we think about this idea of correspondence, of things sort of in our 
um, experience of life corresponding to divine realities and things about God. What does marriage correspond to in this passage? Christ in the church. So Paul, interpreting Moses, says that marriage, the one flesh union of husband and wife, uh, is about Christ in the church. Okay? So marriage is a picture of the gospel. Okay? So this is like the spiritual meta-reality underpinning, undergirding our experience of human marriage and God's institution of marriage. Is that it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of God's love for his people, his redeeming love for his people, his saving love for his people, of him uniting himself to his people into one spiritual body in Christ's union with the church. Okay? So this is sort of the meta-underpinning reality of marriage. Marriage is a picture of something much deeper than itself. Okay? It's about much more than two people being happy. Uh, It's about much more than um, sex in and of itself. It's much more than um, even a commitment to one another, right? It's about how all those things are the ultimate realities in Christ's love for the church, okay? Um, I had a lot of things I wanted to say about that, but I'm going to skip over some of them because we're running out of time here. Um, But I think it's worth asking uh, husbands especially because the onus and the impetus here is on Jesus laying his, the gospel is Jesus lays his life down for the church, right? And the church responds. So if we think about marriage as a picture of that, husbands, that means we're supposed to lay our lives down for our wives, right? This is what headship means. It means service. It means giving yourself for someone else, laying your desires down for the benefit of the other. Um, is that real easy, guys? Sometimes it's hard to know what that means. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, what does it mean? I think it's, I mean, it's, it's scripture. I mean, it's, it's confusing and hard, which I think we even saw Jesus struggling with knowing what he had to do. Um, but also recognizing that only the father truly understood why he was asking, you know, he was having him go through the ultimate sacrifice. Did I say that right? I mean, did that make sense? Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, what I was just thinking is that um, I don't always know exactly what that means, but I know when I'm doing it and when I'm not. Mm -hmm. I definitely know that. And she knows when I'm doing it and when I'm not. Um, and I know when I can see it played out in somebody else's marriage and, and when it's not. Um, we sort of know what it is even if we don't know what it is, right? It's a, it's a posture of the heart more than anything. Um, that I am oriented towards the well-being of another and not just my own. Um, can you juxtapose that, though, John? Um, you're saying the orientation is that um, you're oriented toward another person. But that's, that's also... That's also the way that the, the wife would approach her husband in marriage, right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's dying to self daily. It's, it's being sacrificial, uh, pursuing what is good uh, for your partner, your, your wife. Yeah. So is there a difference between a man's role and a woman's role? Or is 
both of our roles the reorientation of our own interests towards one another. Well, it is that. I mean, that, yeah. Paul says elsewhere, you know, submit one to another. Right. Um, so there is that. The, the way I think about headship in this context um, is sort of that, and there may be a better answer to this, is that sort of the, the responsibility, the onus, the initiation lies on the husband. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It means the buck stops here. Um, and... and for us, that usually means I'm the one that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, other thoughts? I think it's interesting in First Peter, it says, likewise, husbands, look with your wife in an understanding way. Because you think about how many of us, we don't understand one another. Mm-hmm. You know, that seems like a huge challenge that we can only do with Christ. You understand me. It's okay. um, you know, apart from Christ, we can't do that. Yeah, I don't even want to do it. We can't live with another in that understanding way because we really just want our way. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's a work of the Spirit, right? Just to put a point on that. Um, And so when this, again, I sort of know when I see it, right? I know when I'm doing it when I'm not. Um, It's just good for everyone, right? When a family is operating out of that servant reciprocity, um, and because marriage is a picture of the gospel, uh, I think a, a, a marriage in which this is uh, working, not perfectly ever, obviously, um, but is in play, is, uh, is evangelistic. It's inviting to the outside world. You know, um, people whose marriages are just about themselves and getting what they want and are probably not very happy because of that, because uh, no, no marriage can do that for anybody. Um, I think this looks really beautiful. Um, and I, again, I can just think of marriages that I've seen this happening in. I mean, it's very inviting. There's something about that you just think, uh, I want to I be like that. I want to live like that. Um, and so there's this missional element here to our marriages uh, playing out the gospel. All right. Um, so we're going to flip with that sort of idea in mind of marriage having a missional bent. We're going to turn back to Genesis 1 and 2. If you've got a Bible, you want to turn there with me. Um, So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Uh, Male and female, he created them. So, all of humanity in male and female. Uh, And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So we have here the first marriage, right? God creates humanity uh, as male and female. So humanity is both. Um, And the first thing he does after they're married is he gives them something to do. All right, what does he give them to do? Yeah. <laughs> Have babies, right? Uh, make more image bearers. <clears throat> uh, so I know we talked in the first week about this idea of image bearing, but um, a few more comments to make about that. Uh, this idea of image bearing is, you know, correspondence. So there's something about us that uh, represents God. So God's image bearers are his representatives on the earth. And if you think about the context of Genesis, so the the first audience of Genesis, uh, which would have been who? Adam. 
Who is Genesis written to? So the wilderness, the, the wilderness generation, those who have come out of slavery in Egypt, uh, who are now wandering in the wilderness, and Moses is writing the first five books of the Bible for them to help them understand uh, the world and who they are and what they're for and all these things. Um, and he tells them that they are the image of God. And this was language that they probably would have been familiar with because in the ancient Near East, image of God was um, maybe not a technical term per se, um, but it was something they would have been familiar with because the kings, the ancient kings of Pharaoh, uh, would have been considered the image of God. Okay, Because Pharaoh sort of represented God on earth, but only Pharaoh represented God on earth. Okay, And there even would have been statues uh, in a king's region that would have sort of marked out his territory, images of the god. Um, and Moses tells them, you're all the image of God. You're all God's representatives. You're all ambassadors, every single one of you. So that's extremely dignifying, one. Um, and it's missional because it means they're sort of to do something, right? They're to represent God in God's world. And there's a lot of ruling and sort of kingly language here about subduing the earth and uh, ruling over the creatures and things like that. And so they're to rule the world in God's name as his image. And central to their existence in their marriage is to create more image bearers. All right. So you see here, marriage has this missional quality of creating those who will represent and glorify God in his world uh, to expand uh, God's representation, if you will, his authority, his glory to the ends of creation. So there's this missional role in marriage, right? We are to create, procreate by having sex, having babies, more image bearers. So there's this missional role that we have. There's a missional purpose. <coughs> um, this is one of the reasons, by the way, um, that I think we could say that same-sex marriage uh, is actually not marriage because it cannot do this thing for which marriage was created. Also, it doesn't correspond right, to the gospel. Um, if the union of male and female is a picture of Christ's union for the church, uh, there's no union that is possible uh, in a same-sex relationship. And so Romans 1 tells us that same-sex relationships uh, are actually a picture of sort of man turned away from God, man turned in on himself away from God. All right. So those are two theological reasons right there why same-sex marriage, even though it may be consensual, uh, it may be monogamous, and it may be uh, covenantal, which are three characteristics of Christian marriage. It may be all those things, um, but it is not the things for which God created marriage. So it's not marriage. All right. So, um, babies. Talk about children for a second, because children are, again, like I said, integral to what marriage is for, um, which it's worth saying, too. Um, not everyone can have children, uh, and that doesn't mean that that marriage is not a marriage, right? Uh, there's sin that entered the world. There's brokenness in every aspect of human existence. Um, but there is uh, ordinarily the ability to create children in heterosexual marriages, okay? Um, so 
children, um, what are children for? So I've already sort of said what they're for. Um, but at least in a worldly sense, what's kind of the secular answer to that? What are kids for? Legacy. Legacy. Um, it, yes. What are some ways that a, kids might be a legacy? Carrying on the family name. Carrying on the family name. Some folks are very aware that, like, you know, little Billy's the last one mm-hmm. that's going to be, you know, a Worthington, and we got to make sure that the name goes on. <laughs> Get you every time. I don't know any Worthingtons. I just. <laughs> yeah, so they carry on uh, a tradition, a family legacy. What else are kids for? So we can live vicariously. So we can live vicariously through them. Um, yeah, what does that look like? Making sure they do all the cool things and succeed. Yeah, living the life that we might not have lived and making the money we didn't make or having the whatever that, you know. Uh, I see that a lot in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what else are kids for? Well, until recently it was about the care of the family and continuation of, you know, life in the household as parents age and kids assume responsibility for them as well. In a more physical, like in a more provisional sense. That still happens, but not in the sense of tending the land and doing other things that are provided to the family more of a physical needs-based way. Yeah, historically, um, part of having a family was you're providing for yourself later on in life. Your kids will take care of you. They'll yeah, um, help you work the farm, help you work the family trade, whatever. Um, yeah, what else are kids for? Anything? We need something to do with um, all the money we make at work. <laughs> <laughs> Ask a question. For yeah. This is a, I feel like this is an increasing phenomenon, but I have a, a, a growing number of friends who are Bible-believing Christians and enter into marriage and then make an active decision we don't want children and it's not a biological thing it's not but they're actively deciding that they don't want kids yeah well and people are having fewer kids and fewer kids in the birth rate worldly you know some of the conversation but is, is it sinful to decide to not have children as a christian uh, and that's like a loaded question, it, but it possibly could be. I mean, I would yeah, be hesitant to what's say the motive. Like, but it gets to the motive. I mean, we've seen here that, like, I think ordinarily, uh, God wants men and women to get married and have children. And again, there's purposes for that. Um, and some of that, I think, sort of gets back to what I was saying earlier about this expressive individualism. My life is basically about me being me and making me happy. And if I have kids, uh, that could be a real drag on me being happy, right? That's money spent. It's sleepless nights. It's, I mean, we, if you have children, you know, having kids is hard. Um, but it, it could be, I mean, if that's the reason why, then yeah, it could be. Um, so maybe, (laughs) um, yeah, but. I think the biblical answer we see here, and we've already said this a little bit, is that uh, kids kids are for God's mission, right? Kids are image bearers that we create to uh, 
be at work in God's world. So Psalm 127 says children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a reward. They're like arrows. We're supposed to fill our quivers full. I got this from you and shoot them out into the world. Right? I love that. Um, yeah. I was actually just going to commend Scott for making sure he didn't have to teach and answer that question about procreation. Thanks. That's the reason I was telling you, don't, don't, don't. Um, I think that's, that's, it is interesting because, uh, you know, there's so much perversion of the truth these days, and I think I think children um, and, and our, our ideas of children, and particularly to your point in terms of you know conceiving and having children. I mean, anytime the Bible talks about children, it's always in a gift. It's always in the format of a gift. And so when you think about the truths of the Lord, and then you think about the perversion of these truths, you start. To, the question I ask, you know, this couple is, is why. You know, the Bible makes it very clear. That, that children are a gift from the Lord. And, and I'm very I'm very sensitive to this because we couldn't have them for 10 years. And so both of my kids, yeah. as challenging as they might be, are gifts. Um, and in the work that I do around the world, I see where kids can be seen as a burden to their community. And there's, there's no greater perversion of God's truth if you're to look at a kid and say, this child is not a blessing. And I don't care what the state of the child is, neurotypical or not, uh, healthy or not, um, on Hitler's list of life or not, every child is a gift. And so it, it concerns me, um, the rapid decline, just, just of, of, all, of all truths, but particularly when it comes to kids. Because we're one generation away from not having a church. I mean, if you think about that as well. I think the Catholics have a right when it comes to this, by the way. Not all the way, but most of the way. Is the Catholic way just have lots of babies? Well, it's just like, no birth control? I'm not going to lie that far. Yeah. Maybe I will. I'm sorry to go off on that. That's all good. Um, But, so, yeah, kids are hard, and if you have them, you know that it's wonderful. Uh, And you sort of can't imagine what it's like without them. And it's like you you experience uh, levels of joy Mm -hmm. that you sort of didn't have even categories for. Previously. Man, I had no clue how much God loved me until I held my first baby. Yeah. Oh, you gave your what? Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, folks that don't have kids, I mean, I, I, by and large, I do think they're doing it because they think it'll be easier and they'll have more fun without it, but they're really missing out. Um, so, um, when we think about kids, so they're image bearers, right? They're created uh, as we are in God's image. And, uh, one of the things I read this week that Scott gave me uh, was from an old Christian pastor um, named John Chrysostom, and uh, he had, a, I think, a really helpful way of thinking about raising our children, um, which is this idea of sort of helping them to realize or to reveal the image of God in them, right? So we're all created in God's image. Um, uh, as Francis Schaeffer once said, we're, you know, even after the fall, after sin, we're still God's image bearers, badly marred, so we're sort of glorious ruins, right? We're glorious, but sort of ruined and knocked down by the fall. Um, And our job with our covenant children is to sort of um, raise them up in a way to help them be who God created them to be, to reveal the image of God in them, to sort of 
uh, work at healing and repairing and building and edifying them as God's image bearers. Um, they're set apart at their baptism. They're dedicated to God. They're for God. And uh, we don't have a lot of time left, so I won't uh, turn to these passages. But when you look at the scriptures, and I'll just say this as, as a, someone who is a youth pastor for the past couple of years, um, whose job is it to disciple kids? This is the parent's job. Okay. Um, so Deuteronomy 6 gives some really great guidelines about what that looks like, which is basically just, hey, as you're doing everyday, ordinary life, uh, tell your kids about the covenant God and what it's like to follow him. Okay. Uh, in Ephesians 6, just following the marriage passage we read earlier, uh, so Paul addresses husbands and wives. He addresses um, bond servants and workers. And this is a letter that was written to the church, right? So the church would have been gathered together to hear this read. So right after he addresses parents, he addresses children, uh, which means children were in the congregation hearing they were in the worship service, right? And he tells dads, disciple your kids, okay? Um, and this is something I think we've really lost in certain sectors of the church, that it is the parent's job to disciple their kids. Uh, we live in a context, and there's a lot of beautiful things about this. There's some stuff that's not so beautiful about it as well. Uh, a very professional context in which we are able to um, provide lots of opportunities for our kids. And, you know, we pay for the tutor uh, and the extra baseball training. Uh, we pay for the whatever. Uh, and we pay people to disciple our kids. And so what you see is a lot of parents have abrogated that responsibility. Um, we've given up on parenting. It's not just in the church. It's widespread. And the reason, it's not, only, not to be too simplistic, uh, but the reason the culture we live in is so upside down is because parents are not raising their kids. All right. <clears throat> um, there's a professor out at Fuller Seminary uh, named Chap Clark, and he's done some real interesting studies on this. And uh, one of the things he sort of traces out uh, historically is the, the creation of adolescence as sort of a demographic, which is relatively new, like in the past hundred years. So for most of human history, um, to Aaron's point, kids grew up on the family farm, doing the family trade, whatever, and sort of tight-knit communities. Uh, and so kids just received the, the culture of their parents' generation religious beliefs, um, socioeconomic practices, labor practices, all this stuff, kids sort of received and just embodied and passed on that culture. Uh, there's a lot of things that happened. Um, there was wars and the Industrial Revolution and all this stuff. And so all of a sudden, what happens is you have creation of adolescence, sort of a unique category in between children and adults. And you have kids uh, in schools, basically, spending a lot of time together on their own, apart from adults. And so kids create their own unique culture for the very first time. And what has happened is instead of younger people um, embracing and embodying the culture of older generations, young kids are creating culture, which is then being embraced by older generations. And it's sort of a creation reversal. Uh, so think about how many of you guys are on Facebook? <clears throat> the kids created Facebook. There's no kids on Facebook anymore. 
okay? You are a fuddy-duddy. Um, I read a story the other day, and a college professor was talk, you know, sharing something about something he saw on the Internet. He's like, oh, you guys know it's all over the Internet. And the kids were like, I don't know what Internet you're on, but I have not seen that anywhere, okay? Um, kids are creating culture. Adults are embracing it, and then the kids are moving on just as soon as the adults embrace it. Uh, so it's a creation reversal. It's almost like the kids are discipling parents, um, and that's not good. And you can see that all around us. <clears throat> um, I think we're supposed to be done right now. Um, I'll leave a few minutes for questions. So I just, I just want to close with this. I feel like there's a ton of stuff I want to say here that we just... If you've got a kid, you can hardly stop at 7.15. So okay. Can, you keep going. Okay. Um, hey, John, before we finish, real quick, I, I remember when Ingram and I went through premarital counseling, uh, the couple that we worked with gave us an article to read about um, this exact subject, about how we as a society have given up on parenting and how, and this, it was some theologian from Princeton or something, and um, he talked about how, you know, at, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, schools taught reading, you know, arithmetic, and history, you know, but, and then electives came up, and basically electives were another word for things that families no longer wanted to teach at home from from not wanting to teach how kids how to cook, so we created home, home economics. Yeah. We don't want to teach them a trade, so we created shop class. You know, um, we stopped speaking our native languages for people like me who are from immigrant families. We stopped speaking dual languages at home, so we started teaching foreign languages in the classroom. We've turned all of these things over to schools, even driving. You know, we don't drive with our kids anymore because there's a some old man at the high school that's going to teach them how to drive now, you know? And they come home and they're like, hey, will you go home driving with me? Oh, no, there's a big basketball game on in a few minutes. I'm sorry. <laughs> and and, it, and it, the origin uh, I, this professor talked about was this, you know, me time. You know, it was like we get home from work, we get home from school, and it's my time to unload or watch TV. I have all these options now, radio programs, sports, etc. just relaxing. It's no longer building up the family for the next generation. So it's completely forfeiting parental obligations in almost every facet. Yeah. I know everybody in here I know knows this, but like kids do want to be parented, truly parented. And I, and Bill Hay, who was at this church, my, my dad told my husband about this all, okay, still, because I haven't really gotten it down yet, but he was like, <laughs> Bill Hay told me when we were having children that he has seen any number of um, yeah. horrific, like, abuses come through his pastoral office, all kind, that kids will forgive their parents for anything except not being parented, and that that, like, really stuck with him. And then a few years ago, we had a teenager, sort of, anyway, long story, but in our house that we sort of raised for a few years that had not been parented, and I saw how that, so even the, the stepping into hard places or setting hard boundaries at 19 and 20, how much that was needed and wanted was a big wake-up call for me about, yeah, so doing the things that 
It's not fun. <laughs> it's hard. There's no me time. Yeah. Yeah, the, I think the key word there is intentionality, mm -hmm. right? We have to be intentional, not just with our marriage relationships and child relationships, with all of our relationships. Um, we're either intentional, because we're, we're, it's me time, right? It's like, you know, I know I should, but um, but that's not good for me or my kids. No. But if I think about and do, if I'm intentional about it, um, um, I, th I think this kind of speaks into that. I'm going to go back for just a quick second to uh, Genesis 2. So um, there's sort of this sweet marriage song when uh, God creates Eve out of Adam. And Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this phrase, uh, bone of my bones, uh, could and I think does also have this idea of um, self of myself, being of my being. All right. So when Adam sees Eve for the first time, um, he sees really, even though he's already existed as a human being, uh, he, he understands what humanity is for the first time when he sees Eve. And so there's this sense that in order to be human, um, we need the other. Um, we need to serve and be intentional towards the other. And it's good for the other, but it's how I figure out who I am too, by serving you, by serving Candace, by serving my kids. Um, and to not do that, to not engage the other, uh, is something less than human. Uh, which I think is a significant challenge and encouragement to us um, to get involved in other people's lives. Because it's how we be who we were meant to be, and it's how we help other people be who God made them to be. And it's not the expressive individualism thing. It's not like I'm serving you because it makes me happy or something, and you're disposable uh, when you don't. It's, it's a divine imperative, really, um, to love our neighbor. Um, and God will use that in our lives for our growth, benefit, maturity of those around us and for the building of his church. Um, so that starts in our marriage. It starts with our spouse um, and then with our kids. Uh, and, you know, let's just start there, right? Because we've all got a lot of room to grow in all those things. Um, but let's realize that we are most fully who God has made us to be when we're intentionally moving towards the other. So I think that'll be a good that'll be a good place for us to land a plane tonight. Let's be intentionally other focused. All right. Um, let me pray for. One thing I'd add, just you know, God's providence. I married later at thirty nine, and every now and then I've run into people in the church that because I was a little bit older, not married, like I was less than human. Right. I mean, we're talking about identity. Yeah. In some cultures, maybe more urban, you know, you may not see that, but like down here, like. We can find our identity too much. It can become an idol. Yeah. Right? And we can think, like, sometimes the church doesn't know what to do with singles. Mm -hmm. Right? And every now I mean, thankfully it was few and far between, but every now and then, and of course that person made it their mission in life to, you know, make me whole <laughs> and complete, right? Find me a spouse. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, I, we, we run into that too. And I think we at least just acknowledge that, right? Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, um, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that those who are not married are free uh, 
to be anxious to serve the Lord and not have to worry about their spouse. So there's sort of a giftedness there. And how do you know if you have the gift of singleness? If you're not married right now, you have the gift of singleness. Okay, it doesn't mean you'll be uh, always not married. Um, it, but there's also this other sense um, where we can look at single people in a very unhelpful way. And I also think, and maybe you could speak to this too, there is a challenge that uh, single people face um, because they don't wake up next to somebody every day. That there's a, a an aloneness, not necessarily a loneliness, but an aloneness um, that I think maybe single folks have to work a little extra harder to have those kind of intimate friendships, relationships. Uh, and folks who are, are not single, um, which is most of us, I think need to be very intentional about our friends who are single and making sure that they're included in the life of the church um, because they are a gift to the church. Um, so, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, our, our spiritual family transcends our biological family. Yeah, that's good. All right, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you again for speaking, um, for revealing yourself to us, and for revealing us to us, and for the gift of uh, marriage and family and uh, our spiritual family here in the church, your body. Uh, and do pray that you'd help us to move towards one another um, in love and service. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, y'all.